Is it 10 billion or 13 billion in the United States alone that was employed in this, what else can you call it, PSYOPs campaign to coerce, compel, and mandate that we accept an unlicensed product that turns out to not be safe nor effective? Today I sit down with mRNA vaccine pioneer Dr. Robert Malone, author of the new book, Lies My Government Told Me, and the better future coming. Elon now is in the position where he has access to incredibly damaging information about the willingness of the U.S. government to collude with industry and compromise the First Amendment. We dive into information warfare, psychological operations, and how we can make sense of the bewildering series of events we've witnessed in the last three years. Your mind and your thoughts, your very emotions, are the battleground. It is not about territory. It's about what you believe. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Yon, it's, it's been my enduring pleasure to have these chats with you from time to time. It's, it always forces me to think more about things before I walk into your studio. Well, let, let's talk about something that seems to be on everybody's mind right now, which is Twitter, of course. <laughs> and you've said that Twitter isn't a business, it's a weapon. So what does that mean? This is an essay we put out a couple of months ago before Elon uh, transformed the company in the way that he has. Twitter is one embodiment, uh, as, as we all know now, of multiple social media platforms in which ostensibly um, what you interact with you believe to be free. And as has been pointed out repeatedly, if you don't know who's paying for it, you're the product. And the information that you provide is the value that's being extracted. All of these social media platforms are actively employed by intelligence community to uh, shape opinion, uh, to truly shape thought, to shape emotion. And Twitter, it's clear now, has become the premium platform for uh, shaping uh, emerging global consensus about the topics of the day. And in the case of Twitter, what triggered me to write this article was an analysis that had been done. The authors speculated that Twitter was deployed during Arab Spring. As I was reading that section, um, it triggered me because I knew that Twitter had been deployed during Arab Spring as a weapon. And it's often the case in our kind of military industrial intelligence complex world here in the United States that we have a history of of piloting uh, weapons platforms uh, during uh, um, peripheral skirmishes that are occurring in, in our kind of imperial world uh, that we operate here uh, out of Washington, D.C. Uh, in, in the case of Arab Spring, you'll recall that we had a lot of young crowds moving and acting um, in ways that were uh, very disruptive, we'll just say disruptive. Then we're not placing value on you know this person versus that person. They were just disruptive. Twitter was, I knew that Twitter was deployed then because I had a client at the time that uh, was deeply, deeply involved in both uh, non-classified and classified research into uh, being able to map the emotional content of 
uh, language being used by individuals on social media platforms. It's a multilingual program that uh, analyzes emotional content of language. It's a form of, of language processing uh, based on well-established psychological uh, parameters. So it's all statistically grounded. And I was also working for a company, TASC, it's a Beltway Bandit here, uh, and, um, in a senior position having to do with business development. And they had their own platforms that also were being developed for uh, defense and uh, um, intelligence communities to perform similar functions. So what I'm referring to here is that with modern social media platforms, one is able to uh, obviously extensively map relationship clouds uh, and, and also to map uh, the uh, consensus within a relationship cloud about a given topic, uh, where that consensus is moving, who's driving it, who's at the fringes of that cloud that are the influencers that are dragging it in this direction or that direction, uh, and um, uh, these social media platforms, the technology that we're all familiar with as individuals, and we use this language like, I've been shadow banned, okay? I've been deplatformed. I can't get the reach that I thought I could get. Or, oh, suddenly that tweet went really viral and a whole bunch of people saw it. And, oh, that's so great. You know, they all agree with me. That is grossly naive to think that way. The way that these tools, these weapons, information warfare weapons work, is that um, uh, those controlling them can modulate the messaging that's occurring within these influencer clouds that can be readily mapped. And in fact, all the members of that influencer cloud can be physically mapped in space, particularly if they're using a cellular device in an urban center, because you have multiple cell towers that can triangulate them. And that then maps into what's called Gorgon Stare, which is this incredible high resolution imaging capability that we now have in spy satellites. So your um, current state of mind, based on the language that you're using and the topics that you're talking about, can be mapped very precisely, psychologically. Uh, it can be tied into a web of influence relationships. Uh, it can be uh, identified um, in geospatial uh, environments. It can be tied to physical images so that uh, um, that can be tied to what is the vehicle you're driving? Who do you get into that vehicle with? Who are you traveling with? Who are you associating with? All these things can now be totally integrated and mapped. And um, by using these tools of manipulating what information, what tweets you put out, what messages you put out um, to your influencer cloud, they can modulate how those people behave. You can actually very actively control what individuals are thinking, the information that they're gathering, what they're being influenced to do. So a crowd that is in a plaza um, uh, protesting against some action that's happened 
during Arab Spring can be modulated to go this direction physically or that direction or intellectually or psychologically very readily using these tools. Without, and I'll just jump in, without realizing that there's any manipulation actually happening. Precisely. And that, that is the essence of this kind of information warfare, um, psychological operations, and one word that's coming, one phrase that's coming to fore more and more is uh, fifth generation warfare or fifth generation warfare gradient is a better way to think about it. Um, this new uh, battleground in which your mind and your thoughts, your very emotions are are the battleground. It is not about territory. It's about what you believe. It's what you think. And with these tools, that can be actively crafted, modified, manipulated in a very sophisticated way, and then propagated within the domain of those that you are influencing, which is why there's so much importance in targeting those that are, um, let's say, hyper-influential within a cloud of, of connectivity. So then what is the significance of Elon Musk uh, taking over Twitter and what has transpired in your mind, given everything you've just told me? Early on, before the acquisition, when there was still all this discussion about how many of the Twitter users were actually bots or um, synthetic users, uh, not true individuals, uh, there was much discussion about the business model that was driving the acquisition. And this relates to the envisioned company X, uh, a name that apparently Elon has bought back from PayPal. And for instance, to, to kind of illustrate an angle in this, you recall that Elon recently discussed in some of his tweets, uh, I don't know how his board is letting him get away with it, by the way, he must have total control, um, that they're building a new alternative to PayPal. What he indicated early on was the intended business model was more akin to WeChat, in which uh, Twitter, or whatever Twitter becomes, let's call it X for the sake of argument, uh, um, becomes kind of one ring to rule them all. The universal application. The universal application through which you'll do your banking, your commercial transactions, buy your groceries, have your social media transactions, everything. Okay, that's, that's the logic that was purported uh, underlying the acquisition. And so from that, the importance of understanding the true user base becomes crucial because that is um, something that is a commodity. You know, your or my being on Twitter uh, represents a potential node that has uh, commercial transactions that could be monetized. Okay, so um, what do we have here? I'm not sure, and I think a lot of people are kind of on the fence. Uh, certainly, I think we can all celebrate uh, Elon's willingness to be uh, transparent and uh, demonstrate integrity in disclosing the intense, almost casual, routine interaction between the intelligence community, particularly the FBI, and Twitter. That, that in, in these recent Twitter files that have come out, uh, clearly demonstrates how closely integrated Twitter was as a weapon uh, for forming 
um, public opinion and manipulating public opinion and reinforcing the entire the intended public opinion and consensus. Uh, but what's behind that, and and where is he really going with this? This gentleman, that is one of the major defense contractors to the United States, SpaceX, among other platforms, uh, and. Uh, is advancing this uh, clearly transhumanist uh, technology that we call Neuralink. What is really um, in behind Elon Musk's business decisions? And and I, you know, a lot of people get caught up in the uh, enthusiasm of Elon Musk being a savior of uh, democracy and free speech, and. Uh, that may be one of his motivations. I can't get in his head. I don't know what he's thinking. But I do know that he is a business person. And I do know that he's been a very successful business person as well as a very successful technologist. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine uh, that he would have invested, what's the number, 40 billion? 44, um, I think. Yeah, yeah. 44 billion, and, which is a substantial fraction is clearly not his capital. Okay, so somebody is out there that has decided to deploy a major chunk of change, invest a lot of treasure in acquiring this thing, which, um, uh, whether intentional or not, puts Elon in a position where he's functionally able to blackmail the United States government. Now, that's a big word. Uh, it has a lot of impact. But I'm reminded of J. Edgar Hoover, who used to keep his little black book, where he had dirt on a lot of people here in D.C., and then, of course, we had this honey trap operation that we called Jeffrey Epstein and Maxwell that was clearly uh, a, an intelligence honey trap operation to compromise people. And uh, Elon now is in the position where he has access to incredibly damaging information about the willingness of the U.S. government to collude with industry and compromise the First Amendment. And uh, remember, this is a court case being brought by the two attorneys general. Um, and they have just been given a huge gift. It basically makes their case. Uh, so um, I found it fascinating that Janet Yellen, a few weeks ago, was talking about the need to evaluate um, the potential antitrust implications of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Elon doesn't have any other social media platforms. So Janet Yellen basically starts saber rattling. Uh, and a week later, uh, Elon Musk starts deploying uh, intelligence about collusion between the US government and Twitter to censor people on a routine basis. I'm just trying to make the point that there are wheels within wheels within wheels here. I can't ferret them out. I don't think you can either. We're, we're left here on the sidelines observing the passion play, observing the kabuki theater, uh, and trying to discern meaning out of these little fragments of information which are being selectively released and deployed. And, and we also know now that a, a major Democratic operative, a uh, lawyer, was busy filtering all that information until fairly recently, uh, unbeknownst to Elon Musk. So like I'm saying, there are wheels within wheels within wheels on this. And I don't, you know, Elon doesn't call me up. He called up, he, he contacted Jay Bhattacharya, right? Uh, two Sundays ago uh, to go into Twitter HQ and start reviewing um, uh, COVID files. So I'm not talking to him. 
Nobody in my close circle has direct personal communication on a routine basis with him. I don't know what he's thinking, but I do know that he is a very intelligent individual. I know that he is very strategic. Uh, and if he's doing things uh, in this space to advance uh, free speech and essentially to protect democracy um, or protect the integrity of the American experiment, um, I, I applaud that. I thank him for it from the bottom of my heart. Whatever his intentions are, if that's the outcome, one of the outcomes, it's a win. But I don't think any of us should be so naive as to assume that that is his only objective. One of the things that struck me, and I've written a little bit about this, uh, is, is the, the gift, the thing that I think the gift that Elon has given uh, everyone is he has a substantial following. There's a lot of people that love Elon. Right. And a bunch of haters. And, and, and certainly a bunch of haters. But, but here's the thing, okay? This corporate media ecosystem and so forth, you know, is started all of a sudden hating Elon, right? When they were either neutral or very positive to him for the vast majority of, of, of the opportunity they had to do it. Tesla stock so, tanked. Tesla stock tanked. So, my point is that all these people are now watching how this whole ecosystem has shifted on this guy, right? And wondering to themselves, wait a second, has this, could maybe this has happened before? You know, this is, a, it's like this giant red pill. I, that's what I think. I have a friend that corresponds with me that uh, makes the case that uh, the, um, it's actually Alex Marinos, um, uh, you know, a, a key opinion leader in this uh, social media space. Uh, and uh, just a shout out, I'm grateful because he endorsed that yes, in fact, the data do support my thesis that uh, I was the original uh, inciting event inventor for this technology platform. Put that aside, Alex makes the case that Elon goes through these love-hate cycles about every two to three years and has been doing so for quite a long time. Hmm. And uh, he his thesis, among others, is that um, he repeatedly uh, battered and bruised Bill Gates. Um, he basically outmaneuvered him uh, on a Tesla stock and other things, and with SpaceX also, uh, beat the expectations. So there's, there's this long history of him uh, going through these hero-villain cycles in, in corporate media. Uh, and that, that uh, appears to reflect uh, underlying tensions within this caste that I like to call the overlords, uh, <laughs> this tiny, tiny fraction of elite that are, we can increasingly see seem to control a lot of global events. Uh, and what we may be really observing are the artifacts of uh, competition technological and financial, between um, these heavy, heavy hitters that are so far above uh, the world that you and I exist in that we only have a vague kind of cloud awareness that they're up there doing something. But you're not entirely a stranger to this whole, you know, de defense space here in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, you've got 
secret clearance. You've worked with all sorts of contractors. We talked about it even in this interview a little bit earlier. Um, you know, you've sat on a number of these boards in these uh, three-letter health agents, agencies and so forth. You know, why don't we actually start with how you got from doing the work that you did three, four, five years ago into talking about what you're talking about today? To, to kind of comprehend my world, it's important to kind of go back to the root of uh, those events, that cascade of events that happened when I was 28 and 29. Working for this, you know, leader in American biotechnology uh, who was trained by David Baltimore, characterized reverse transcriptase form for which he got the Nobel Prize. David Baltimore being one of the most influential molecular biologists in the history of the world. I'm referring to Indra who eventually got run out of the Salk Institute because of Me Too. Basically, he finally got outed after decades of sexual harassment. And uh, Inder gave me an ultimatum if I left his lab when I left it. Um, and you'll recall from my personal story, I left it at a time when I'd had a nervous breakdown and was diagnosed by physicians at UC San Diego as having post-traumatic stress disorder based on what I'd experienced at the Salk. Um, but Inder told me that I would never get an NIH grant if I left, and by God, he was right. I was forced to find another way uh, to proceed, and uh, then, as if that wasn't bad enough, I destroyed my career as a gene therapist by being a whistleblower about the Jesse Gelsinger death, uh, this UPenn um, adenoviral vector uh, overdosing situation that Jim Wilson uh, got into that collapsed the entire gene therapy industry. Um, and at the time I was taking training with a bioethicist at U Maryland, uh, who is also Jill's PhD mentor, by the way. Uh, and uh, I told him what I knew about what had taken place. And he said, Robert, you have an ethical obligation to disclose what you know to the press. The press at that time included Cheryl Gay Stolberg, and that became the basis for an article that really catapulted her career in the New York Times. And it eventually resulted in the collapse of the entire gene therapy enterprise, really, is funded by NIH. So I was persona non grata times two. Uh, and I had to find a way forward. When I was in 1991, is that right? Uh, I think 1989. Yeah, it's like 91, um, 92. Uh, I had um, obtained a, literally a million dollar contract award by having good connections and knowing that there was an opportunity. It was actually when Bob Redfield uh, got in trouble for ethics with the AIDS vaccine. Suddenly a bunch of money became available for AIDS vaccine development. And I had the connections and I managed to capture a uh, little over a million dollars to build a DNA vaccine for AIDS, which was uh, a radical idea at the time. And this was a Navy operation. I knew the DOD system, and I knew that it operated in parallel, autonomously from the NIH system. And so I basically have sought refuge within the DOD space and, and have a long history of working closely with those people, both as a funded and as a facilitator kind of a, um, a problem solver. 
And over time, because of my connections and, and who I'd grown up with, who then had people that had grown within particularly Defense Threat Reduction Agency, they came to me again and again for advice and assist, assistance in building um, teams to solve complicated problems. A notable example was um, when I basically spearheaded the development of the uh, Ebola vaccine and got Merck to buy it. Um, so the Merck Ebola vaccine uh, was a project that I took on um, in this kind of uh, surreptitious at the fringes of DOD and uh, business space. So I've long operated in this kind of gray zone between um, uh, Beltway Bandits and, and service providers, contractors, and uh, Department of Defense of necessity because I couldn't really operate within the traditional NIH academic space. Uh, and yet uh, NIH would come to me because I had this deep, deep experience in, in taking products all the way through from discovery through licensure, regulatory affairs, clinical development, project management, all this stuff I'd had to master over decades. And, and so they would, NIH would come to me uh, and ask me to serve as uh, study section chair, particularly for these very large contracts, 80 million, 100 million, 150 million. And I kind of grew to specialize in assembling teams to solve complicated problems and capturing the money to get them funded to do the stuff that the Gubbies wanted to have done. So that's kind of been my business. And the way that that has worked, and again, it's of necessity. I was forced into this space. And the way that works as a consultant, just trying to pay my bills, is that um, these clients want to take credit for what gets done. Um, and so um, you have to operate to to do a business like what I was doing, as, a, as essentially a small consulting shop, um, you have to operate behind the scenes. You have to keep quiet, let the client um, take the win, uh, enable them, facilitate them, coach them. Uh, and that's kind of how I've gone along in my career now for decades, until uh, this cascade of events which is unlike any, you know, I've been, I've been doing this through multiple, multiple outbreaks now. Um, I mentioned Ebola, Zika, uh, um, many, many rounds of flu. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bona fide expert in flu vaccine development. Uh, used to be um, clinical head of Solve uh, for their $330 million uh, influenza vaccine, cell-based influenza vaccine contract. I know all of this area really well, um, but when this thing broke, uh, this COVID crisis, it was unlike anything I or my peers had ever experienced. And uh, as usual, when I get this phone call from this character, Michael Callahan, uh, that, that I was under the impression he was at Wuhan at the time, uh, uh, he says that he wasn't. Uh, he went to Wuhan shortly thereafter uh, and then left with the quarantine is his story and then went to the Diamond Princess and managed that. Uh, but when I got this call, as I usually do, uh, I made a threat assessment and I said, what's it going to take to build a vaccine? What's the timeline? What's the timeline for new drugs? What's the timeline for repurposed drugs? And I threw myself into identifying with my team, identifying repurposed drugs 
uh, back in January of 2020. And uh, once again, that's a whole area, that's a block of time that I really can't disclose what happened. Okay, I was working as a government contractor for a Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Um, there was a period of time when we were interacting closely with uh, Johnson & Johnson because of some of the drugs that we've identified and we wanted to move forward clinically. Uh, I was working um, under contract for Lidos. I worked for a long time on a big contract that I helped facilitate getting the money for uh, that we ran through uh, MIT and Lincoln Lab. And this is all you know, semi-classified government space. I'm not at liberty to discuss what I did then and what we did if I had been able to. And you can see the artifacts in some of the publications, both published and, and submitted to servers, preprint servers, but we could never get published, like the interaction of celecoxib and famotidine, or the interaction of celecoxib, famotidine, and ivermectin that we tried to get through the FDA to do clinical trials on. None of that stuff is really transparent to the average person. So there's this block of time where I was working my can off, you know, seven days a week, trying to advance repurposed drugs. Uh, and then this kind of cascade of events happens that uh, I get to the point where I'm, I face a, uh, a dilemma. Um, do I uh, break my uh, long-standing strategy that many here in DC use, uh, you know, keep your head down, if they can't see you, they can't shoot you, uh, or do I come out and uh, speak publicly and say this is not right? And of course, the history shows what my decision was, uh, and um, uh, yet now I'm being uh, attacked by many uh, because of this long history of deep connectivity within the government. Uh, um, that people are inferring that somehow I'm compromised because I have this long history. Uh, I can assure you and, and the viewers, I stopped receiving any capital from Lidos. I think it was January of last year. Uh, at the time when I resigned from uh, the Active uh, uh, Drug Development Committee uh, and, and disclosed some of the things that were going on there. Uh, and they were pretty insistent that I resign at that time. So uh, the problem with this whole thesis of uh, jacuz uh, that's been deployed against so many people of uh, um, we accuse you of being controlled opposition is that it's very difficult to refute this thesis. And uh, um, because, as, as a colleague of mine put it, it's akin to a witch trial. Anything that you say is interpreted as confirming that you are in fact a witch. So in terms of this whole thesis of, of how did I get from here to there, um, and uh, as the uh, wonderful woke journalist from the Atlantic Monthly, uh, hit me with so long ago uh, before he put out his hit piece. How come you're doing this? You must have some financial angle. You must have some conflict of interest. And my response to him was, no, it was the right thing to do. And, and he just couldn't process that, that, that somebody would do something because it was the right and ethical thing to do as opposed to having some 
ulterior motive or financial angle or you know conflict of interest and and I've been through I don't know how many cycles now of of people hypothesizing this that or the other conflict of interest uh, but I have the benefit of basically having an open heart and um, when I get hit with these things I know in my soul uh, that I have been very conscious of potential conflicts of interest all the way through this. I've been trained on COI for years and years and years. And I'm very aware of what it is, how insidious it can be. And Jill and I have supported each other, my wife, Dr. Jill Glassbill Malone, uh, in uh, ensuring and talking on a daily basis, uh, you know, what about this, what about that? One can take this level of social influence that I now have been given and uh, exploit it to extract uh, wealth in some way. There's a whole lot of different ways you can do it. And we have tried really, really hard to avoid any of those things, knowing that if we did that, there would be blowback. So hence the Substack uh, is all free. We, we made, Jill and I made a conscious decision when we launched that Substack after Steve Kirsch had advocated that we did because we could make so much money that we would make it all entirely free uh, and put the only restriction that if people uh, that we would restrict comments within the Substack, uh, that comment section, to people that are subscribers, which has the lovely side effect that it keeps most of the trolls out because they don't want to spend five bucks a month. But in terms of the content and the information, which was our intention to get that out, it's all free. And that's because in large part, we have been very, very wary of the trap of, uh, as, as uh, biblical scholars would call it, the trap of mammon, the trap of money that can distort things so readily uh, in, in um, Having been in the consulting business for decades, I'm very aware that um, the influence of a client, a major client, paying me on a routine basis will distort how I view the world. I'm human, as are we all. Jill and I have tried super, super hard to, um, to maintain a stance that um, protects us from the pressures that would cause us to bias our um, opinions uh, in our actions. That said, we, we have a bias. Our bias is to um, the truth, to data, to facts, um, and trying really hard to avoid um, going into these speculative realms of uh, what is Tony Fauci thinking? I don't know what Tony Fauci's thinking. I can't get into Tony Fauci's head. I don't know what Klaus Schwab is thinking. I don't know what Harari's thinking. I only know what they say and what they write. And we can evaluate those things objectively. And so that's why I've tried so hard to stay on the side of the line of documentable, fact-based information. Uh, and as you know, because you've experienced it consequent here at Epoch Times and NTD News, consequent to some of the things that I've said that were out on the edge, uh, yet still fact-based, but were far from the accepted consensus of the time, that I still took plenty of hits from that. 
but as did you uh, at Epoch and you personally. But by, by forcing this rigor of not allowing yourself to cross that line and speculate about intent, speculate about somebody's strategy, um, it's allowed both of us to come through this three years um, with our integrity intact and I think to a significant extent with our reputations intact. So there's so many things to bounce off of here. And you know, there's one specific thing is coming to mind about, uh, of course, in your book, Lies My Government Told Me, which has been kind of an incredible, incredible tome to read. Um, but let's start with this. My first thought is truth-seeking is a very difficult business. Um, I've come to learn over the last 20 years. and especially when you try to tackle things that are very, very difficult for people to accept. <laughs> you know, for example, having done some of the original reporting on this murder for organs industry in China back in 2006, so many people just simply won't accept that this as a concept. It took me a while, frankly, to, to grasp the evidence that was presented. I feel like in this space right now, we're kind of faced with these kinds of unbelievable realities. I'm very concerned in part that actually given this fifth generation warfare 5GW architecture that you've been describing, that this could actually itself be intentional. You don't know what's up, what's down, what's real, what's not. And so the only thing that I know is to try to dig at the, get at the truth as much as possible um, and hope that that will act as the North Star and that will kind of get us through the other side. Okay, first thought. Second thought, I wanna talk about um, your wife, Jill, and this is something a lot of people don't know about, and this comes through in your book, that she is actually plays a major role in your, in your writing, in your thought. You, it's a very, very, very close relationship, both personally, but also academically and in terms of your work. Um, there's this moment in the book where it really struck me. This is the thing that actually made you reevaluate a great many things at the beginning. And I want you to tell me about that because Jill actually had a book that, well, tell me the story. So it goes back to this fateful call that we got in the beginning of January of 2020. Uh, with Michael Callahan saying, uh, you need to get your team spun up. Uh, we have a problem with this novel coronavirus, which at the time had no name. Uh, and in retrospect, none of us can disambiguate whether that was a genuine alert or whether it was yet another manipulation. Uh, because the timeline and the involvement of the uh, intelligence community in the United States uh, with this uh, novel coronavirus keeps getting pushed back in time more and more and more. But from our lived experience, Jill and myself, I get this call and Jill and I talk about what does this mean. I go through this process of threat assessment and, and she says, okay, what I can do uh, in this situation is put together a text, a book, a paperback, and self-publish on Amazon. She was a real fan of Amazon self-publishing. 
She likes to read the self-published uh, novels and things like that. It's, she's an avid reader and uh, very much the uh, intellectual uh, wonky woman uh, that seems to have come to fore in so many ways during the last three years. I think one of the key stories that's, that's not readily discussed is um, these, the voice of these intellectual women leaders coming to fore, like Whitney Webb, Mary Harrington, my wife, and many others that, that are voices that we haven't heard before, maybe because they've been drowned out by others that are more endorsed, the blue check crowd, let's say. And she says, okay, the one thing I can do is I can write and self-publish on Amazon a paperback that would speak to the people, the kind of people that we have in our lives, uh, the folks at the feed store, uh, the 18-year-old that helps take care of our horses, friends and family, average people, um, and alert them to the meaning underlying what has just been disclosed to us by Callahan. And so she gets going on building up, it turns out a little over 100 pages, uh, highly referenced uh, academic type work, but uh, written um, for, uh, for the com layperson. common people. Yeah, yeah, written for the layperson uh, to uh, help them to prepare and protect themselves from the novel coronavirus, which doesn't yet even have a name. And uh, she works her can off. We're both sitting there on opposite couches. I'm working on the computational stuff on my laptop. She's working on the book. I edit her stuff. Um, I write a chapter for it about the virus, et cetera. Uh, and she just busts her can and gets it out in the first week in February, which some detractors cite as evidence that I'm deep state because I must have known about this months and months before in order to put out a book in uh, first week in February. But the fact is, as the world now knows, she's a prolific writer and she did this thing. And her intention was by doing it as an ebook, in particular, she would have the option, we would have the option of updating it every few weeks as more information comes out so that the ebook subscriber could buy the one version. Once again, we weren't doing this to make money. Uh, and um, she puts it out and she goes through revision one, two, revision three in March. And suddenly she can't uh, get revision three to go live. And she's like, what's going on? I don't understand it. Uh, and uh, so she writes to Amazon again and again and again, what's, what's happening here? Finally, they come back and they say, well, um, uh, we, can't, we can't publish this. We're going to have to take it down. Um, uh, and their policy has always been that if they do that, if you're slandering somebody or using inappropriate language or publishing porn or whatever the thing is, whatever the offense is, they will tell you what it is and you can then modify your book and they'll allow it. To, that's always been their policy. They won't tell us what's going on. And then finally, um, we get a message that has these words that we've all come to know and love. We have violated community standards. And yet there's nothing in the Amazon community standards for publication that has anything to do with COVID or viruses or anything, anything that we've said. And people have gone over that book, which is now dated, you know, because it was written before Trump officially, in theory, even knew what was going on. Um, 
I, I'm, it's hard for me to believe that to be the case, but that's the party line, is the government didn't really wake up until March, and suddenly this thing that she has thrown her heart and soul into uh, has been deleted uh, for violating community standards with no appeal and no opportunity to rectify anything and no details. Uh, and she's heartbroken. I mean, think about if you spent a month breaking your back, um, writing a highly detailed 100-page document um, just to help people, and then suddenly you're told um, you cannot publish this, it cannot be in circulation, nobody can obtain this. Uh, um, think about the psychological impact. This is her first book. And so she digs in and uh, documents this uh, trail of publication in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others about the uh, collusion, I think is the best word, between uh, the World Health Organization, Amazon, uh, the social media giants, and the White House. Uh, and of course, this is all in Trump time, as Peter Navarro would put it. Uh, um, all of these relationships were established then. And what we now know, I didn't know then, uh, I was as uh, influenced by the CCP propaganda as anyone. I believed the people dying in the streets and all of that, the rapid build of the hospital, all that propaganda that got pushed into the US government to justify the China solution that they then employed in all of us. It was really hard to come to terms with the fact that this had all been deployed and then we learn that it had all been anticipated during event 201. This was pre-planned. Uh, this whole propaganda censorship, uh, really, I don't know how else to say it, information warfare, psychological operations strategy that we've all been subjected to for the last three years. And Jill, at the, you know, in the frame of when this happened, was able to grab these stories that had been uh, posted in these various organs that we now call corporate media or state-controlled media, like the Washington Post and um, the New York Times, that clearly demonstrated that uh, this was highly coordinated and what we had just experienced was at the absolute front end, the tip of the spear, or as they like to say, the bleeding edge of uh, of the events and the strategy that would then be deployed against the entire world in a harmonized fashion. We have all been subjected over the last three years to military grade psychological operations that were using technology developed for offshore conflicts. Um, and they have been deployed against the citizens of virtually the entire Western world. And uh, as Epoch Times is exquisitely sensitive to, these are the technologies and strategies that are central to the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to maintain control in, in its information battle space. And we've now had this deployed against us. We're now seeing the documentation um, on a daily basis released to us by Twitter of uh, this intense collusion between the U.S. government, tech, and uh, corporate media. But uh, for sure, the first kind of radicalization event for Jill and I 
in our um, stepwise progression of becoming increasingly disenchanted with the government and what was being done to the citizens and, and increasingly attuned to the fact that they are breaching um, uh, guardrail after guardrail uh, in terms of ethics uh, and the norms of uh, drug development, bioethics, biodefense, pharmaceutical development, uh, all of that has been disregarded in a rush to advance a technology platform that just serendipitously happens to be the one that I played this key role in back in 1989, but has now been perceived uh, as supporting multiple agendas, uh, including um, convincing a skeptical population that historically has been very wary of uh, genetically modified organisms to allow themselves to become genetically modified organisms. I mean, in a way, you have to admire uh, the technical prowess that has been on display in a global way uh, in uh, this deployment. Is it 10 billion or 13 billion in the United States alone that was employed in this, uh, what else can you call it, PSYOPs campaign to get people to accept um, uh, products which are neither safe nor effective and uh, which have not met traditional standards, are not licensed, fully licensed. They're available under this special clause of emergency use authorization. And yet um, the government felt uh, that it was acceptable uh, to deploy uh, these military-grade technologies against all of us to coerce, compel, and mandate that we accept an unlicensed product that turns out to not be safe nor effective. You can sort of imagine something like this happening, you know, on a national scale. But it's very hard to imagine, I think, for a lot of people, something like this happening on this global scale. Everybody speaking with, with the same talking points, the same vision, and um, oblivious, and this is, the, this is the hard, the really difficult part, to the, to the many, many questions uh, around whether it's the lockdown policy early on or the, the genetic vaccines and you know, the harms associated with them. It can be hard to fathom. Can I respond to that? Because I want to loop back to something you said earlier in your history, your personal story, having to do with your difficulty in coming to grips with the, how else do we call it, fundamental evil of organ harvesting in the CCP and the meaning of that. Um, I think as I've tried to wrestle with this and with people's um, reflexive revulsion in unwillingness to even allow these discordant thoughts uh, to come into their mind, the possibility that these things might be happening in this way, whether it's organ harvesting or it's the darkness of uh, what appears to be the emergence of a, a pharmaceutical corporatist uh, global centralized state. Uh, um, I think it is a testimony to people's intrinsic goodness 
it demonstrates that most people really believe in these fundamental ethics that we could call Judeo-Christian, or there's a number of other words that we could use around this, but the belief system that there actually is right and wrong, that there are ways that civilized people should behave. And to confront the possibility of something so evil where people are willing, government officials, or some who is the puppet master, I have no idea. Or is this just a swarm emergent phenomena? I just can't, I can't, I, I don't have enough data to disambiguate that. But I do know that, that the, this reflexive reaction of people like yourself, um, in which you, it's hard for you to even grapple with the possibility of such darkness as a globally coordinated propaganda campaign harmonized that involved, just as one example, as I just learned from my trip to Austria that I just came back with from yesterday, that involved um, massive amounts of capital being deployed to essentially buy off artist influencers across the world in a harmonized, simultaneous fashion. That, you know, my friends in Vienna, when I was there, were complaining all of the musicians and the artists uh, and influencers in the arts in Vienna, one of the world's capitals of the arts, were functionally all bought off. They all received money at the outset in order to compel them, coerce them, whatever language we want to use, to endorse en these encourage products. Them. Encourage them. Encourage whatever, whatever you, the, mm -hmm. the, the language. Mm -hmm. and, and this is another point I want to make. Language really matters, as Orwell so clearly pointed out in his writing. And we have, not only have we been subjected to this barrage of coordinated propaganda, we've been subjected to a barrage of intentional manipulation of our very language to support this initiative and this agenda. Uh, how do we recover from this? How do we recover our innocence? How do we move to a world in which we can trust one another, in an environment in which every single person needs to second think whether or not this person or that person is controlled opposition, where there's always that doubt placed into your mind, where you have to approach every transaction with a modicum of suspicion. How can we form community? How can we form trust? Because in my experience, with you know decades with clients, um, uh, you have to give trust in order to get trust. People will not trust you if you don't trust them. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's very subtle in human interactions. And if we're now forced into this environment by these chaos agents, let's call them, these, these entities that are exploiting um, this psychological information warfare battlefield towards whatever their objectives are. And I don't think either of us really know what the end point is. Um, I'm just going to comment. And this is like there's domestic actors, there's foreign actors. It's just this whole miasma. And they're not all necessarily on the same page. So it's very difficult to see through it in particular. Right? And some of it is emergent. Mm -hmm. uh, there's in, in, the, in, the, in the environment of modern social media, in that battlefield landscape, because that's really what it is, um, in my opinion. I think it's the best metaphor to think about it, is it is a battlefield, and your mind is 
the territory that's being fought over, um, all of the psychopathology that exists in the human species comes out. It's all there. It's all raw. People's uh, all kinds of agendas having to do with their own insecurities, their own desires for power and influence, uh, their need for independent validation. Uh, all of these come out and interact in a very complex way with these other forcing functions, these other agendas that are being pushed into the social environment. And it's very, very difficult to disambiguate uh, intentional from emergent phenomena um, and from just normal human uh, dysfunctional interactions, you know, bullying and all these behaviors that we all know from our schoolyard days. They're all there on display on a daily basis in this amazing stream of human interactions that we call social media. And they all interact to, to as Mary Harrington, I think in her lovely unheard essays, she speaks of this uh, swarm uh, emergent phenomena of consensus uh, that Twitter has been so good at enabling and crafting and shaping. Uh, but um, that's, that's our new world and it's different. And there's something particularly disturbing that Mary Harrington notes when talking about this swarmism, so to speak, and it's that there's no locus of responsibility. It's diffuse. And like, so, okay, and I, and I believe it, I'm even getting shivers up my spine as I say this right now, but that fundamentally turns our whole way of dealing with responsibility, accountability on its head. Completely. And it's, it's a very DC thing, as I pointed out in that one essay where I speak about this. Um, uh, um, it's long been the practice here in DC to set up a uh, elite commission on fill in the blank, right? So if you've got a problem, you set up a commission, um, the members uh, come up with their own assessment and their own recommendations and they file some study report that people ignore or whatever. And then the decision makers can say, oh, well, we gave it to this commission. And the commission can say, well, this was a consensus opinion. No one of us uh, is really responsible for this. You know, you can't hold anybody on that commission accountable. You can't hold the people that commissioned the commission accountable. It is the perfect kabuki strategy and it has absolutely been uh, refined to a fine uh, edge uh, here in uh, the imperial capital. So I want to reference your book a little bit here. Um, and you know, you talk, you. <laughs> no, uh, no, my pleasure. It's quite the tome. It includes, um, a series of essays by, you know, a number of them have been on the American Thought Leaders program here with me on various topics. You divide it into three parts. You start with, you know, what is the... Uh, I use the metaphor of how a physician approaches a patient. Um, yeah, the, yeah, first, yeah. the first thing is to take the history and physical, which is what I try to give the reader is a kind of a, a front line, a front row seat in experiencing vicariously what some of the people out on the front edge have experienced. Uh, Pierre Corey being a great example, or Paul Merritt. Uh, then the middle part is sense-making. In, in the physician metaphor, that's akin to the diagnosis. How do we make sense out of what's happened here? 
and the book is a real-time journey. I, we, Jill and I could not have written this if we just sat down to write it right now. Um, because we use this process of serialization using the Substack tool, each of these chapters derives from kind of a real-time assessment of events that were occurring. And it benefits in that because a lot of the citations are increasingly getting memory hold. They're hard to find. One of the things we're talking about with the publisher is to grab all those citations and put them on a website that's going to be protected so they can't be memory hold and, and deleted. Then the third part is this uh, better future coming. Basically, in the metaphor of a physician treating a patient, uh, the patient in this case being the entire Western world, um, uh, what can we do about it? What is the treatment plan? Now that we take this journey of seeing this is what people have experienced, this is sense-making about what the heck happened that led to those experiences. And then the third part, what do we do about it? That's the treatment. Mm -hmm. And that was the hardest of all to write. You know, what is this better future? And you're, you know, you describe your purpose as kind of, you wanted to sort of just open up people's Overton window. And I thought that was quite, quite a good way of explaining because it's not, um, you know, my, my experience here going through these last three plus years, there's been many moments where I've been forced to challenge my assumptions about a whole series of things yeah. and just really honestly look at the data, the information. And I, being inherently a very skeptical person, right, I can say it was, it, it's been actually a very difficult journey in a lot of ways. Yeah. So when you look at these things, you don't need to accept them wholesale, right? True. Yeah. Don't accept what I'm saying as truth. I don't want to be the leader. Um, that is not my goal. I believe that the best gift I could give to the world at this point in time, as I'm starting to age out at the end of my career, as is Jill, the best gift that we could give to the world is to open people's eyes and to help them learn how to find information and how to interpret information themselves. If I can help uh, people, we, I think this is a shared mission with Epoch Times, if we can help people to get access to information and learn to make their own interpretation and decisions, I think this is our best tool to counter um, I'll just say it, totalitarian propaganda that's coming at us from every direction. Why don't you give me a bit of a flavor of what is in this third section, something that you think is particularly important? So uh, there's the um, sections that have to do with the technical side of our U.S. government. This is the role of the administrative state or uh, in the role of what Steve Bannon once again has given us a good word metaphor, uh, the role of the Praetorian Guard, uh, his metaphor for the intelligence community uh, that acts to protect the interests of the administrative state and the, let's say, established political elite here in the United States, and very much operates in a similar way in the European Union in Brussels, as I've learned uh, over the last three years of travel. Um, and. Uh, 
what allows that, what in part significantly enables it, is um, what many consider to be an abrogation of authority by the legislature in the United States. We're supposed to have three co-equal branches, and they each have segregated duties. And uh, um, one of the key sections uh, discusses some very uh, tangible actions that could be taken by a new administration that was committed to returning the American uh, experiment back to uh, something more akin to the original vision as opposed to this expansionist federalist uh, monster that's been created that is basically consuming the world. So this has to do with things like the legal underpinning that enables the existence of this permanent cadre that we call the Senior Executive Service. These thousands of people that cannot be fired, that functionally run the government. And uh, whatever you think of Mr. Trump, and there's obviously a diversity of opinion on this, and I don't want to get into it, uh, I, per, part of my personal journey has been to come from that place of a stereotyped version of Mr. Trump that was promoted in corporate media that I bought, just like so many others did, to realizing that, that a lot of that was propaganda and that a lot of things that were done during that administration were dead on. And one of those is Schedule F, uh, this, this very clever uh, effort to administratively reassign the employment classification of all these federal workers that surround us here in D.C., in the Beltway, and throughout the country. In fact, the most influential ones is the ones that it, that it inadvertently targeted. It was a very interesting... Yeah, and uh, you know, no surprise that this was the thing that uh, he managed to finally get through all of the court obstacles that are thrown at anybody that tries to change um, employment law having to do with uh, these key federal employees. Uh, and um, Schedule F finally overcame the last legal hurdles. Um, and then the election happened and the very first action that Mr. Biden took was to rescind uh, the executive order about Schedule F, which I take as example of uh, how powerful uh, these entrenched administrative state interests are. So there's a bunch of technical things about the revolving door, about the problems with uh, all of these federal agencies that have dual mandates, for instance. So, uh, you know, to take it out of the context of COVID, remember the uh, 737 MAX? Okay, that turns out to be a great example of administrative capture by Boeing of the FAA. We have abundant examples of capture of the USDA by Monsanto. I mean, the, the head of the USDA for years has had close ties with Monsanto. Um, all of these federal agencies that have dual purpose, they both regulate the industry and they promote the industry. We have to separate that. That cannot continue. It's at the root of the corruption. Now, my colleague Peter McCullough likes to point out the FDA under emergency use authorization acts as both the sponsor and the regulator of these medical products. Okay? That, that can't happen. That is, in anybody that has had 
accounting 1A knows that that's wrong, okay? You have to separate those kinds of functions or you get corruption. It will happen. Humans are humans. They behave in certain ways in response particularly to money. Um, and uh, the, the corruption of the FDA and the CDC is at such a stage now that I think it is so self-evident that only the most hypnotized deny it. So there's, there's that kind of technical stuff about the administrative state and what can we do about it. I put it there because we need to have discrete action items that could be taken up by another administration. That was the intention. Do I think that that's going to resolve the problem? I'm afraid that the loss of integrity throughout our government is so deep and profound and we see it on a daily basis. We see it with, I'm sorry to pick on him, but Dr. Fauci is a skilled liar as is typical of people that have been through the training in our intelligence community. Um, it's interesting that, that Tony Fauci's, just to digress slightly, Tony Fauci's appointed new uh, um, uh, stand-in uh, during this time where he's resigned uh, has all the hallmarks of intelligence community. He has worked in the biodefense sector and stood on all the main committees as Tony's right hand for well over a decade. He is deeply embedded in uh, the intelligence community and the biodefense enterprise. And you know, I, another thing that I speak about is uh, ARPA-H, this new uh, division of NIH that is modeled after DARPA, the functionally the developmental arm of the CIA. That's what DARPA is, right? They created the SR-71 spy plane and they created the internet. Um, among other, many other things. Um, uh, we now have an entity uh, of similar structure led by a former DARPA program officer now uh, that um, has a line item budget for the first year of $1 billion with no detail for what appears to be advancement of transhumanism and uh, biometric identification and all of that agenda within NIH. It's basically the intelligence community moving in within NIH. So we talk about this, um, but we also talk about uh, the better future that people can enable on a personal level. Uh, and uh, one example that I love is uh, this group in Italy called Apocrity, uh, which is the Italian spelling for Hippocrates. Uh, that have now created their own medical school, they are running into all kinds of obstacles to enable their intentional community network of uh, alternative medical care and, and physician training programs and public training programs. But I think that they really offer some hope and some vision there. We also talk about uh, basically victory gardens, empowering people in this landscape in which we are globally facing major risks of uh, food shortages. And uh, this has been a, a theme of Jill and I for many years. And uh, it was part of the original book that she put out. Actually, that chapter is, is derived from the chapter that was in that original book of uh, how, how effective um, Victory Gardens were during World War II. They produced a huge amount of food. Uh, they set up Victory Gardens in Central Park in Manhattan. Can you imagine that now? But they did. Uh, they were enormously productive. And uh, 
and it's something that people can do themselves uh, to change their own trajectory and to enable them to be uh, more autonomous, to maintain personal sovereignty. Um, so the, the last part is this kind of mix of uh, technical things that need to be fixed within the government, uh, and can we fix them? I don't know. Through uh, very pragmatic things about um, how to enable a decentralized uh, future for all of us, as opposed to this very dark fourth industrial revolution, transhumanism, uh, central command economy uh, world that um, these transnational organizations and really globalist organizations like the World Health Organization, United Nations, etc., seem to be so actively, to use their own words, shaping for us. Uh, and this gets to the carbon credits and all those things. Uh, you know, we, we don't have to live in their world. And I think that our opportunity now is to help build a vision and a way of interacting that can better capture the, the potential of humanity um, in a decentralized way that celebrates our diversity without needing to try to enforce um, some centralized diktat of, of how we are to live our lives. Um, and I think that's the opportunity with a persuadable middle. Let's, let's all take a little time to think about what the world we would like to live in looks like. And that's kind of the other part of that last section of the book, is trying to lay out how do we start to get there? And I want to say clearly and explicitly, I don't know the answer. I think I can help contribute um, some ideas about process, but I'm really wary of people who think they know the answer and want to tell us what it is. Um, I've come to really mistrust those people. We can all agree that uh, this enabling better future of decentralization where we all have our own little version of an Amish community and we're all matrixed together. Um, and let's create a think tank to figure out how to do that, which loops us right back into the same problems that we currently have. The pro how do you envision a future that has never existed? How do you envision a way of organizing humanity that's different from anything that's been tried before? Because what keeps coming back at us is a 19th and 20th century version of somebody's utopia, whether it's Marxist or whatever. And, and I'm sorry, that's yesterday. How do we get to 21st and 22nd century thinking about uh, how to organize ourselves in a world of uh, these vast social networks and virtual interactions uh, that have all kinds of emergent properties? I don't know, and I don't think any of us know, but I think it's a journey we're taking. No, absolutely, and this is a journey we'll, we'll be taking together. Um, Dr. Robert Malone, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Elon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of American Thought Leaders with Dr. Robert Malone. We're actually gonna head over to Twitter Spaces right now to do a live Q&A, and we have a short link for it. 
That's ept.ms forward slash Malone space. Again, ept.ms forward slash Malone space. See you there. Mm -hmm.